Good morning, everybody. Many years ago, when I was a teenager, I met a girl who was a Christian. And at one point, she asked me a very direct question. Do you think you're a Christian? Well, I was rather taken aback by this question, and I replied, I think so, but I'm not sure. And she looked me in the eye, and she said, well, if you're not sure, then you're probably not a Christian. Now, that sounds rather harsh, and I don't think I would be that direct with anyone. But at the time, it got me thinking about this important question. How can I be sure? It led me to discover more about the Christian faith. And not long after that, thankfully, I was able to answer that question and say, yes, I am sure. And this issue of being sure is a very important one. It's an issue you may find that you've asked yourself from time to time when it comes to the Christian faith. How can I be sure that I really am a Christian? And how can I be sure that I have eternal life? Well, in the book of 1 John, over the last few weeks, we've seen that there are three signs to help us to know that we really are a Christian and that we have eternal life. We talked about them earlier, didn't we? Nurturing biblical faith, offering biblical hope, and showing Christ-like love. And in today's passage, John returns in more detail to this theme of assurance or being sure. And he mentions three important hallmarks of what it is to be a Christian. If you watch TV programs like the Antiques Roadshow or Bargain Hunt, you'll know that they often come across antiques which look like they're made of silver and gold, but how do we know it's the real thing? Well, we look at the hallmark. It tells us the maker and the quality of the metal. And in our passage today, we have three hallmarks which help us to be sure of our faith and know that we are truly a Christian, a believer. So let's have a closer look at our passage and find out what these are. And John tells us that the first hallmark is this. We love our brothers and sisters. Right at the start, in verse 11, John couldn't spell it out more clearly. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And to hammer this home, he reminds us, of a very sad relationship breakdown between two brothers in the book of Genesis. We know that over the years, sibling rivalry has been a very common issue in families, and there are many examples over the ages. Cleopatra had a hand in the death of three of her siblings. In more recent times, Noel and Liam Gallagher from Oasis had arguments that ended up in court. And more recently, we know Princes William and Harry having had a friendly rivalry for many years, now at loggerheads and going down different paths. Well, John reminds us of the very first sibling rivalry. Verse 12, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, it's interesting to consider why a normal sibling rivalry got so out of hand and led to this awful extreme of murder. We know from Genesis chapter 4, both Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord, and the Lord looked with favor on Abel's offering, but did not look with favor on Cain's offering. And several interpretations of this have been suggested. But to me, the most likely explanation is that Cain's sacrifice is described in Genesis like this. 
some of the fruits of the soil. Whereas Abel's sacrifice is described like this, he gave fat portions from among the firstborn of his flock. In other words, Cain gave an ordinary offering and Abel gave a fantastic offering. The quality of their offering reflects the condition of their hearts. Abel is enthusiastic in his worship. Cain is basically uninterested. Well, whatever the explanation, we know that Cain's heart was dark and it led him to murder his own brother. And John warns us, too, that if we, too, don't take care, we might fall into the same spirit as Cain. Of course, we're unlikely to take it to such an extreme. But as John reminds us in 1 John 3, verse 15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. See, it's all to do with our hearts. Evil thoughts, jealousy, rivalry, hatred are damaging. They're unhelpful, negative, and destructive. And, you know, we look inside our hearts from time to time, and we may well find the same spirit lurking there. The problem with these thoughts is that they are attempts to elevate ourselves above others, attempts to exalt ourselves at the expense of others around us. And when we fall into the spirit of Cain, there is no love to be found there. I wonder if you found yourself jealous of others sometimes, wishing you were doing better than them, resenting their perceived success. Our hearts can so easily turn this way. What do we do when these thoughts assail? Well, we need to remember the words here in 1 John 3 to love one another. Love drives out fear. Love drives out jealousy. Love drives out hatred. Love gives us a sense of delight when others around us succeed and do well. Love is the perfect antidote when we are assailed by the spirit of Cain. But it's easy to say that, isn't it? We all know the importance of love in principle. We all know how central it is to our Christian faith and to our Christian lives. But what does it mean? How do we actually do it? And this brings us to the second hallmark of a true Christian believer. We are called to lay down our life for others, just as Jesus laid down his life for us. Verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So we're called as Christians to have a giving spirit, to have a servant heart, to go the extra mile. We're called to keep giving to others even when we feel tired, when we feel unappreciated, when we feel that we've always given enough. We're called to think of others' needs more than thinking of our own. Jesus has shown us the perfect example in laying down his life on the cross for us. And that's our pattern to follow. And love means giving in practical maybe sometimes even in financial terms. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions, sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? It's not enough to express sympathy for someone. It's not enough to feel sorry for others. It's about rolling up our sleeves and giving through practical action. Verse 18 reminds us of this. Dear children, Let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 
It's about love in action. It's about real practical expressions of love for others around us day by day. And it's not difficult in our society today with the rising cost of living and rising poverty to realize just how apt these words are. Now, sometimes as Christians, we're called to lay down our lives in a big way. There's a great example of this from the Second World War. There were four men who met at an army chaplain school in Harvard University in the U.S., And their names were George Fox, Alexander Good, Clark Poling, and John Washington. And in February 1943, they were on a ship, the Dorchester, a luxury liner used to transport troops. And their ship sailed through Atlantic waters between Newfoundland and Greenland, and it was attacked by a Nazi U-boat. The ship was doomed. There were 902 people on board. And the four chaplains got busy looking after others. They all gave away their life jackets. They refused to abandon ship. They tended to the men who had been wounded by the torpedo. And for those who couldn't get off the boat, they offered spiritual counselling. And finally, as the Dorchester sank beneath the waves, they linked up arm in arm and prayed to the end. And many years later, in 1961, the U.S. Congress agreed a new and unique award. The posthumous medal for heroism was conferred on all four men. You see, sometimes we're called to lay down our lives in a big way. It may not mean actually giving up our lives, but it may mean big sacrifices. Looking after elderly parents, looking after members of our family who are ill with a long-term sickness, Or it might mean choosing not to take that dream job and spending more time with our families. Sometimes laying down our lives for others comes at a real cost. But sometimes we're called to lay down our lives in the regular day-to-day. I guess we all have days when we face responsibilities and we don't really feel like it. Many of you will know that I teach at a college in London And I have to be honest, there are some days when I wake up very early in the morning, I set out for a two-hour train journey across London, and I think to myself, I really don't want to go in this morning. If only I could stay in bed for longer today. Anyone recognize that feeling? Well, when I feel like that, I often say to myself, well, why am I going in? See, it's not just to earn some money, but it's to serve the students that I have been called to teach. My role is to lay down my life that day for them so that they can learn and grow and have a good learning experience. And I remind myself that this is the pattern that Jesus has given as he laid down his life for me. And it changes my perspective. It reframes my thinking. I go into work with a different mindset. And the pattern Jesus has given us is a great pattern for us all. When we next struggle with the thought of our day ahead, whether it's looking after the children or the grandchildren or going into a very challenging day at work, whatever it may be, let's remember to reframe our thinking and remind ourselves we are here to lay down our lives for others, to serve and to give our lives just as Jesus has done for us. And you know, it'll make our day go so much better. And it doesn't mean it's easy. Remember Jesus in Gethsemane crying out, Father, take this cup of suffering away from me. Even he found laying down his life 
very difficult. But he still did it out of love for us all. This is love, laying down our lives for the sake of others. It's a great calling, and it's the hallmark of a true Christian believer. Well, so far, we've seen two important hallmarks, and now we come to our third, which is, as Christians, we come before God with confidence. Now, this sounds very straightforward, but it's not always as easy as it appears. There are two great challenges which stand in our way. And the first is this, that our hearts condemn us. Verse 19, this then is how we know we belong to the truth, how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. See, we long to follow Christ and live our lives for him, but the more we go on, the more we wonder whether we've made any progress at all, and we realize how much further we've got to go. We recognize our failings. We realize that the love we have for our brothers and sisters falls short of what we want it to be. In fact, the more mature we are as Christians, it seems the more we realize the darkness of our hearts and just how far we have to go. As a result, we can feel crippled with guilt and feel that if God really knew the state of our own hearts, there's no way he would accept us. Martin Luther once said this, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. D.L. Moody, the preacher and writer, said this, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than with any other man I met. And John Wesley once said this, Worst of all my foes, I fear the enemy within. And you see, if these great men felt condemned in their hearts, then what hope is there for the rest of us? So how are we going to deal with this? Well, look at verse 20. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Whenever we feel this way, we need to remember that God knows us better than we do, and he is fully aware of our strengths and weaknesses. He knows our failures. So when we face the crisis of a guilty conscience, we can set our hearts at rest, knowing we are relating to one who knows us better than ourselves, in fact, knows everything about us. doesn't excuse our weaknesses, but it reminds us that we're all covered by his grace. And that gives us confidence as we come before the living God. And when our confidence is restored, we feel secure in coming before the Lord again in prayer. Verse 21, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him everything we ask. Now, the second challenge we face as we consider this issue of confidence is that our obedience is so imperfect. It's not just about our hearts, it's about our behavior. We're called to obey his commands, but we know that we can never live up to the great standards that he's set for us. Verse 21, we're called to obey his commands and do what pleases him. High standards set out for us, and sadly, we can never fully reach them. And our failure can knock our confidence and bring real discouragement. So how do we deal with this one? Well, verse 24, those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. This is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. 
How do we find confidence in the midst of our failures? We remember we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. He's there to guide us. He's there to give us his power to keep making progress day by day. No, we'll never be perfect in this life, but we are on our way until we reach perfection one day in heaven. So there are great challenges, aren't there, which can knock our confidence. Our hearts may condemn us, our behavior may disappoint us, but the mark of a true Christian believer is that despite all of that, we can have confidence in the Lord and in his work within us. I wonder if you feel that your heart condemns you and your behavior lets you down. I think we all feel like that sometimes. Well, let's remember that God has been dealing with people like us for thousands of years. Although he never condones our failures, he has a great remedy. Our sins can be forgiven and he gives us the power to pick ourselves up and make a new start once again. Well, we must conclude. We've seen three key hallmarks to help us be sure that our Christian faith is authentic and genuine. People who love one another, people who lay down our lives for others, and people who come before God with confidence. This passage tells us that we can know, we can be sure that we're truly God's children. Three key verses make it clear in this passage. Verse 14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Verse 19, this then is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Verse 24, this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. And so today, Let's check our hearts. Let's assess our lives. Let's reflect on the hallmarks of authentic faith. My prayer is that all of us will find these hallmarks clearly stamped upon us. May God give each one of us the assurance that we are his children and valued members of his family. Amen.